right, welcome back, everybody. Hello, hello. This upload is coming to you August 16th, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for this edition of the Post Money Plan Podcast. I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. We're going to continue the discussion about the economic situation in Venezuela with Gus. You'll recall from last week that Gus is a Venezuelan living in America who still has family down there, so they're currently experiencing the economic hardships that are going on, and he has direct contact with them. Last week, we touched on hyperinflation and then the the Venezuelan oil resources and, and how that plays into the whole situation, and then some of the government nationalization that has gone on. But now we're going to go further into the details and the history of leading up to the situation as it is now in Venezuela and how the government social programs have played into that, that were put in place that caused a, a bunch of this mess. So let's start right in on the recent history in Venezuela. It was crazy for me to do some research and find out that Venezuela was actually one of the wealthiest South American countries during the second half of the 20th century. And as a a large oil producer and exporter, it was actually the sixth largest OPEC producer, they've actually had oil collapses in the past, and and we've seen the impact there and how much of an impact it has on Venezuela because there was the oil collapse in the late 80s that created really high inflation. Back in 1989, Venezuela had 80% inflation, and economic instability created a, a breeding ground for social unrest. So that was an opportunity where Hugo Chavez was a military officer who took advantage of the situation and led what you were talking about earlier, the Bolivarian Revolution in the 80s. That was back when he tried the the coup d'etat in in 92, but failed and was actually thrown in prison. And it's crazy to when you read into history and find out people like Hitler, mm. he tried a coup and was thrown in prison eventually gets out and then is the leader of the nation. And that's what the same thing that happened here is that eventually he gets out, forms a political party, and is able to become the president of Venezuela by 1998. I forgot the year, but it was in the 90s, late 90s, when uh, Chavez was pardoned by the president at the time. He uh, campaigned under making sure that a lot of Venezuelans had opportunities and were used to oil money fairly. In the past, there was a lot of corruption a lot of the oil money income would like just disappear. And uh, Chavez was campaigning over a political ideology of just spreading the oil income and creating social programs, helping families with education. A lot of programs that on paper sound very good. What you will see after time is that this creates a mindset of the people just thinking they can receive everything from the government and not really realizing that, hey, it's, it's time to produce. Not everything in life is handed out to us. I mean, again, there were some good intentions behind the plans. I think the way we went about executing, or the Bolivarian Revolution went about executing it was just the wrong way. Stealing from people and taking away from industry and private property is, are things that just over time just hurt every country. Yeah, that's a big problem I see is that when people fear that the government is going to nationalize their assets, and what that means is an example of that is you're a farmer and you produce crops, and then the government comes and says, we need the crops to share with the people, so then we're taking your farm from you. 
that then scares everybody from becoming a farmer because why are you going to spend your money to then buy the farm that they're going to take from you and then you only get maybe a little bit of portion of corn back. So that scares anybody off from actually trying to own things and produce things. So just taking it back to what I was talking about with Chavez, he ended up holding the presidency until his death in 2013. So he was in power for about 15 years and had time to institute a lot of policies and and changes in the Venezuelan economy. And while he was in power, he enacted a lot of the socialist policies that you were talking about, like nationalizing major private industries and controlling food production through efforts called Bolivarian missions. The missions were basically these social programs that were launched starting in 2003, and there were different sub-programs within that that were supposed to provide social justice and welfare to people and fight poverty by providing things like free medical clinics and food and housing subsidies, educational reform. There were all these different types of missions, and on the surface, they sound great. It's like, oh, yeah, well, like who wouldn't want better education and, and free medical clinics and things? Well, things like poverty, literacy, and income inequality, and all that seem to get better at first because you take all these resources and, and you give them out to people who don't have them at first. The problem is if that's just funded by record high oil revenues, which you had in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then all of a sudden you don't have that anymore, You don't have the money to just fund all these infinite programs. The money has to come from somewhere, and that's an important economic lesson. There is no such thing as a free lunch. It has to come from somewhere. Just because someone goes into a food kitchen and gets a free cup of soup, it wasn't free. It's just they didn't have to pay for it. Like someone else had to pay for it. And like that's okay. Like we should try to help people that are starving, but it's not free. Like it comes at a cost. Yeah, and it should be out of free will people wanting to help people it shouldn't be out of force and somebody telling you this is what you need to do because eventually they can use force to make you do anything right okay so then what happened after chavez after uh, he he died in 2013 well he the second in command at that time is uh, nicolas maduro the current president he took over chavez pretty much told the people that he was his chosen one to continue the revolution as soon as he took over, he kind of tried to carry the same personality that Chavez had, the same persona, but the people could realize immediately that he was just different, different background, different ideas, different ways of communicating. It's just, it didn't feel the same. And I think both the people that are for the government and against the government realized that there was going to be change coming. We just didn't know it was going to be for the best or for the worse. Right. I'll see pictures of him where he'll be wearing like a velvet jumpsuit or there's like ridiculous things like that. Where, you know, it, do, it just doesn't seem right, you know, that the, like the president is wearing these things and, he, and he's still in power today. Yeah. So Maduro is upholding the previous policies and, and continuing like he hasn't really changed the course of government policy, right? Correct. Yes, they still have the Bolivarian Revolution in mind. What we've seen in the past three to four years has been... Uh, He's been polarizing it even more. He's realizing that the the party is losing its power and its grabs on the government. Last year, Venezuelans, for the first time in, I think it was 15, 16 years, or maybe more than that, overwhelmingly voted against the party and took uh, control of the Congress for the first time in a while. That spoke very loudly to the Socialist Party. They realized that they needed to act quickly And as soon as the opposition, that's what we call the people, uh, all the parties in Venezuela that are against the Socialist Party, they call themselves the um, Democratic Unity. 
have regular folks, would you say the opposition? The opposition parties immediately started calling for a referendum to get Maduro out of power uh, before 2019. I think that's when his term expires. You know, we've been hearing excuse after excuse and the Constitution being trampled over and just violated left and right. For his party, they're doing everything they can in their power to avoid this election from taking place because they know that right now, with the people being hungry, they will lose immediately. Which, just on a country philosophical basis, the foundation of how you run and operate a country and what people across generations can agree on is based on having a constitution, laws and things that people look to that transcend generations and and opinions that people say, this is what we all adhere to and will abide by generation after generation. And so when you have someone that consolidates power and then just says, forget the constitution or forget all these things and we're going above it, you're superseding the law and saying it only applies to everyone else and not to me or whoever's in power. That's a very, very dangerous thing. Yeah, that's right. Like in, in Venezuela, we have, I think this is the fifth or sixth constitutional assembly. When Chavez won, he immediately rewrote the constitution to empower the Bolivarian Revolution. What's kind of ironic now is that that same constitution that he wrote is exactly what the opposition party is using to uh, demand that he give up power constitutionally. And now that he sees himself on the other side, in the losing side of the story, he's trying to do whatever is possible to rewrite it. I don't know if you've seen, but recently there's been protests for over 100 days now. Close to 100 people dead, most of them students, that have been on the streets every day to have the elections being held and hearing the voice of the, the people. They want the Constitution followed, and the party is doing whatever they have within their power to avoid going to elections at a time. And when you have finite resources in terms of food and all this stuff like Venezuela now, the problem is instead of it being equally distributed and then the people in power also hurting, they keep enough for themselves to be happy and then everyone else is suffering. So they'll make do for themselves and be okay because they get first dibs on things, which is just not fair for everyone else. People literally starving back on the constitutional thing. It's a matter of when people have almost absolute power, they just want even more power. They want the absolute, absolute power. Putin, when his term was up, like changing his role and making it so that he could stay in office longer. Hitler, what he did, changing the the structure of the role and basically making it unexpiring so he could just stay in power. What people have done across time is just basically changing the goalposts. So then we're rewriting the Constitution and say, you elected me, but now we're not going to have elections anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's been the, the main strategy of this Bolivarian Revolution. Like, if you see from the moment that Chavez won till um, nowadays, you'll see that he very strategically rewrote the Constitution or amended it if necessary, expanding presidential terms, allowing indefinite re-election, even taking away guns from the people. And everything that has been happening in a two to three year period, every time slowly introducing new legislation to basically just consolidate power. You know, the more I see it, the more I think of power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. You just see it. And like you were saying earlier that they get first dips and everything. That's completely right. There's actually websites and text messaging chains going all over the place that just show where Socialist Party, uh, their relatives, where they live. And, you know, they live in Miami. They live in Europe, Spain, Italy. They live in all these fancy places. They tell you the revolution's great, but then their family members are not there to live it. They don't feel the consequences or the decisions. That's for everybody else to deal with. Yeah. 
the point you mentioned just back there, when a, a government really wants to make sure that it has absolute power, you say, okay, let's take away guns from people so that then there's no way that they can resist and produce opposition. Because if you're a government in power that has all the guns and no one else does, no one can fight back and everyone has to submit to whatever you say, which is what we've seen throughout history. It starts subtly and looks good at first, but then it's basically a switch where all of a sudden it's like, hey, what happened? And you have no power to resist. And in my outside opinion, and this is, seems like what's happened in Venezuela, the pendulum swung one way back in the late 80s. You had oil drop and then people say like, oh, this, this isn't working for us. We want something different. Chavez comes up and says like, okay, we, we want to make justice for the people and I'm going to promise you things and, and people love. Okay, yeah, I want free things, like awesome. And then people get excited about that and support that. But then someone gets in power like Chavez and consolidates everything, redistributes everything, but then takes away incentive for private enterprise and investment. And then in the long run, you end up with less production and less abundance. And then if you've taken away the guns, then once the pendulum finally swings back the other way and people get unsatisfied with what's actually happened, there's no power to resist. And people are having to go around with poop bombs and, yeah. and ridiculous things like this because they don't have weapons. They have nothing. It's horrible. Yeah. If you see pictures of the protests, it's mainly students building barricades and shields out of whatever they can and facing dead on the National Guard. It's rocks, Molotov bombs, you name it. Like They're trying to design whatever they can to have a chance because every day somebody dies. And you got to admire the courage some of these kids have where they're facing National Guard and uh, water tanks with nothing but something they build themselves. And it's not only the students. I mean, you see, you see the elderly in the marches, too. You see the congressmen. We recently had a couple congressmen in the marches being thrown around by the water cannons like rags and being carried off to the hospital bleeding. I mean, for people here in the U.S., how would you feel if you had one of your congressmen in the march just shut down by a water tank? How, <laughs> how would you feel your democracy is working at the time? Yeah, that's a crazy state of affairs to even imagine. Like mm -hmm. in D.C., if a congressman was protest marching and being bowled over by a, a water truck, yeah. it's just horrible to think of. So that's the thing, too, is when things are going okay and people are unsatisfied with the political process or the way things are done, there's too much risk for an individual who has wealth or freedom to resist tyranny at that stage in the game because you say, okay, if I speak out and say we shouldn't do things this way, then the opposition comes in and takes things from them or oppresses them. And so they have a lot to lose at that point. But then as things get worse and worse and people lose their wealth, you move further and further along the spectrum of, of risk-reward to having a revolution. Because as you become poorer and poorer and you're starving and your family is starving and you lose your job because the economy is bad, you have less and less to lose by fighting and saying, I want something different. So when you get to a point where now in Venezuela, if everyone you know is starving, you have basically nothing to your name. What do you have to lose by saying, I'm going to fight this even if it kills me so that my family can survive tomorrow? There's basically nothing left to lose. And that's when you have violent revolutions and people get hurt. It's not a state of the world that you want to have to descend into. Tell us a little bit more about your family and some personal situations that are going on there in Venezuela. 
Well, um, currently I have a couple family members that have uh, required some medical treatment dealing with uh, tumors and just surgeries. And the situation there is so bad that they don't have the necessary medical supplies to treat some of the surgeries and to keep people in the, in the hospitals or in the clinics. So it's very common for us to just receive requests, urgent requests for um, medicines that is needed. And you can talk to any Venezuelan outside of the country and they'll get regular text messages saying we need such and such medicine to treat somebody urgently. Please uh, spread this along and help us out if possible. You know, that's happening not only with uh, medicine, but with many other things, food, basic toothbrush, toothpaste, shampoos. I, I think I mentioned this previously, but it's just basically anything that can be life-saving or take care of somebody is something that you see immediately people being reached out to for. If we ever take for granted to think that you can go to like Walmart and pick up a toothbrush and toothpaste and all these things for $3 and have such abundance, to take that for granted is, is such a, an error on our part. It's a, a wonder of our system that has produced such wealth and we should really be grateful for what we have because, like you say, there people don't even have food. Yeah, I mean, I had a family member that got married recently, and part of our family came to the States just to, um, you know, attend the wedding. And I wish you would have seen their faces when they walked in into a Walmart or HEV, just seeing the fruit aisle <laughs> and seeing all the stuff that were there. I remember clearly they just paused for like three to five seconds and just looked around. And I remember turning around and just seeing their faces. And I forgot that they're not used to this anymore. They're not used to seeing fruit and vegetables everywhere. And taking them to Walmart was taking them to like Disneyland. They would try to buy as much as whatever they needed. And you will see people that travel outside the country taking clothes back, food and things they know they're going to need for the next couple of years. You know, same happens with like cars. Just driving around, you know, in the U.S., you have these big dealerships with, like, hundreds of carts out there, and their faces, just seeing the amount of goods that were available for people to purchase, like, you can tell it was hitting them, like, deeply. Just realizing, hey, these are things that, like, we used to have, we grew up having, and now it's very difficult to come by, if not impossible. And they know in their minds that, like, for our children, it's pretty much going to be impossible for them to have these things. And it's just very, it's a very humbling experience, and it makes you really think of, the promises of what a socialist government usually gives you versus the actual reality. And, you know, having a couple of generations of hearing what was promised and actually living the reality and the failed promises is very humbling experience just to see their reactions and just how affected they've been by everything. It's something that, uh, you know, as a Venezuelan, I don't wish this upon anybody, any country, nobody. If we try to look at the positive side of this socialistic experiment we had, we've been having or having right now, is that when Chavez won, there was a lot of countries in South America that quickly followed with a socialist movement. And slowly, little by little, all of them have been going back towards more right-leaning government. And a lot of the ones that are currently about to have elections, they're pointing at us as an example of why they shouldn't have a left-leaning government, why they shouldn't have a socialist movement. They say, no, hey, Colombia's one of those recent ones. There's a candidate there that's been promising. He sounds more left-leaning socialist movement, and there's a lot of Venezuelans in Colombia, and they know exactly they're a brother country and nation, and, and they look at us and they say, no, hey, we don't want to go through what they're going right now, so we're, we're not going to be voting for this guy. 
So if we look at the positives, we hope that Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, any other country out there that knows what's happening in Venezuela, that they keep in mind that this is just not happening to us. This, is, this will happen to any country that makes the decisions we make. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to highlight this, because we don't want other people to have to suffer these things as well. And the sad thing in my mind is that it's not the first time it's happened. And unfortunately, it probably won't be the last either. Because yep. like I said, this has happened in Zimbabwe. I think it was the early 90s, and they're still suffering from that. Like I said, Germany after World War I was an absolute disaster. It's happened time and time again throughout the world. For some reason, we're not learning our lesson. <laughs> we're not taking advantage of the history that we've already experienced and learning from other people's mistakes and leveraging that experience. What concerns me is if we would follow those, that direction for the U.S. and think like, oh, this wealth will just continue on forever and we never have to worry about it. Because even the great empires like the Roman Empire fell apart from much the same reasons as you overextend yourself and think you're invincible and spend yourself into debt. And then eventually you can't pay for things and you debase your currency, which they did even back in the, the Roman times, mm -hmm. putting less gold in the coins. And eventually the government loses its power because you can't convince people to do things because money is how people are convinced to do things. It's not something that I want to see happen anywhere else. And I, I don't want it to see continuing in, in Venezuela, but I definitely wouldn't want it to happen in the U.S. as well. And for people to talk so badly about the abundance that we have in the U.S. is like we should not waste. I think we definitely should not waste, but to not appreciate the wonders of how you can hop on your computer and order on Amazon something that comes to you next day shipping is such an entitled, spoiled attitude to have to not take that with such gratefulness and thankfulness because of the amazing system that we have. And to institute policies that would take those kind of things away is shooting yourself in the foot, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's just like you were saying, it's part of human nature to forget there's something that just always tells us we like to believe that the promises of the people are saying, I'll provide this, I'll give you that. You don't have to work hard for this. You deserve this. You deserve that. It's always populist precedents and people like that. They're always going to be promising you things they can't deliver. And there's something about our nature that tends to believe that. We just got to realize how you were saying earlier that there's no free lunch. We got to work. We got to produce. I always like to think of, I think it was Mark Twain said something along the lines of the world doesn't owe you anything it was here first and that's the type of mentality that we gotta we gotta keep in mind we gotta realize that hey you know if we want to eat we gotta work we gotta produce and that's the that's the most loving thing we can do for our neighbor and for everybody out here if we expect other people to work for us and produce for us and we just live off of them to me that's just honestly just pure hate just disguised over some other presentation or delivery is something that we just got to be very aware of, very careful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if, if an animal doesn't struggle for its food and, and work to get its food, it doesn't eat. <laughs> and, and the animal will starve. So it's kind of presumptuous for us to think that we can have things without effort and not have to work for them. Just because of our technology, okay, it makes things easier, but we still have to work hard and, and nothing comes without a cost. So I think that's just a valuable application out of this. Yeah, definitely. I think I mentioned this before, Dallas, but something I learned by living both in Venezuela and the U.S. is just realizing that 
one of the main reasons we have this socialist movements or any movement that pretty much is based uh, on hate and taking away from people is that we got to do a better job of self-respecting and realizing, at least for me personally, I see the message of the Bible and I see, I see that Jesus' commandments are telling me to love God and love my neighbor. And when you hear about a system that just takes away from people and steals from them, hoping to give to others, you know, most of the times the system will disguise itself at least that's the loving thing to do. But you don't see it in the Bible to say, hey, steal from somebody and give to somebody else. You will see something that says, work hard, take care of the poor. How about the commandment, thou shalt not steal? Thou shalt not steal. That commandment itself implies private property and, and ownership of things. Yeah. But with that, it also comes to the maturity that somebody that follows the Lord has to have as well, that if I have private property, if I've been blessed, if I've been given the opportunity to produce, I need to be very aware of my neighbor. I need to help the poor. I need to take care of them. And we need to realize that like, if our communities don't take care of ourselves, don't help each other without force, that's usually when the government comes in and says, hey, you know what? We need to provide equal opportunity for everybody. We're going to take away from some people and we're going to give to others. Although it's disguised over an act of fairness, over time you see that eventually trickles down to just taking by force more and more and more. So it's something that we just got to keep in mind. You know, our jobs are to love God, love our neighbor, produce and take care of our neighbor voluntarily. If we don't do it voluntarily, we're going to realize that soon enough we're going to be forced to do things we don't want to do. But that's kind of the irony of the situation is, is when you have an economic system that creates abundance, then people are less desperate for things. And then by that token, it's much easier to be generous, not necessarily talking from the moral side of it. If you have 100 goats, it's easier to give one away. So having a system that creates 100 goats instead of just having a system that has 10 goats and we're only going to just figure out how we can divide those 10 goats. If we have a system that keeps producing new goats, that's much easier to have abundance and then give goats to the next person and whatnot because you're going to have more goats the next day. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, I think what you're saying is just giving people the opportunity to produce. Let people produce and you'll see that people can take care of each other. Yeah, exactly. I definitely believe in that. So let's go ahead and cut it off there. I want to thank you again, Gus, for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And if there's updates that happen with Venezuela, you'll have to let us know. Will do. Thank you, Dallas. All right. Thanks for listening, and catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. Mm-hmm.